This is What Do You Do? I'm Katie. And I'm McRae. In today's episode, we're chatting with Tommy Loveless, a professional dog trainer located in Virginia. The average salary for a dog trainer in the United States comes to about $35,000 a year. And while it's a good idea to get some formal training and certifications to break into the industry, there's currently no universally recognized training program. Some trainers begin their careers through canine agility competitions, police canine work, or by working in an apprenticeship with an already experienced trainer and learning from them. Tommy is a former Marine who has been training dogs for four years. He works at Ridgeside Canine, a veteran and police-owned, full-service dog training facility in Virginia. Tommy works with a large variety of dog breeds and trains them for every purpose, from family pets to working dogs. Let's hear what he has to say. All right, so we're talking to uh, Tommy Loveless. He's a dog trainer in Virginia, right? Yes, sir. Okay. Um, so I guess to get started off, how, can you talk about kind of how you got started? Like what, what um, drove you to train dogs? Absolutely. So always loved dogs, had dogs since I was a kid. Um, was always one of those kids that the dogs always came to. So always had a passion for them. Um, serving in the military, the Marine Corps specifically, when I was overseas, I got to see the military working dogs in action and really fell in love with the, the drive, the ability for the dogs to turn off. Um, just seeing what they were capable of doing, all those cool things. So when I actually got out of the Marine Corps in 2012, um, I applied for a service dog through an organization in California where I was living at the time, um, up in the Sacramento area. And <clears throat> the transition from getting out of the Marine Corps into civilian world was definitely a hard one. Um, so the service dog was supposed to provide this great, you know, partner, buddy, you know, someone that had my six and it didn't turn out that way. The dog wasn't trained, went this whole hellacious, just bad time with this dog and it ended up taking me a year to get this dog to where he needed to be oh, man. outside oh, no. of the organization that was supposed to give him to me. So, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so after that, I decided that, you know, I didn't want any other veteran to go through that. So we started an organization called Range Day for Veterans, um, where we would raise funds doing shooting events in California for guys that need service dogs. Oh, wow. Cool. Um, and it went really well for about three years. And then I moved back to Missouri in about 2015. And about that time, I didn't really know what to do. Um, had just gone through a divorce, was kind of struggling. And uh, a buddy of mine reached out and said, hey, dude, why don't, why don't you get into dog training? Like, you're, you have a passion for it. You're really good at it. You've been doing service dogs for these guys for the last couple of years. Not necessarily training them, but providing money for it. Um, and I was like, well, where do I start? So I started searching for dog schools because I didn't want to do an apprenticeship for two or three years to try to figure it out and, you know, not really have right. an income from it, all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. So That's I actually cool. found a dog training school that had been around since like, I want to say the sixties or seventies, um, that was right down the street from my house called the Tom Rose school for professional dog trainers. And um, cool thing about it was they took the GI bill. So I went through a year and a half of schooling to be a dog trainer, learning behavioral stuff, all that inside and out, training techniques, uh, sport dogs, pet dogs, working dogs, all that kind of stuff um, at no cost to me. The, my GI Bill paid for the whole thing. Awesome. So it was awesome. Um, so that's kind of how I got into it. And then pretty much I started my own business, um, did really well with that, started working for a company called Off Leash Canine, um, was with them for about a year, uh, didn't really clicked too well with them. So I ended up leaving and then got hired on or more or less asked to run 
uh, a satellite location for Ridgeside Canine, which is a Virginia-based location, which is who I work for now at the headquarters. Um, but I ran their St. Louis location all of last year oh, and cool. did really, really well. Um, trained a few hundred dogs last year while I was in St. Louis. And then the whole COVID thing hit and just sales dropped, everything dropped. So we ended up uh, getting offered to come out here to Virginia about five, six months ago um, to work for headquarters. And, oh, great. Uh, <laughs> That's so awesome. Pretty much in a two-week notice, we packed up all of our stuff, uh, <laughs> pregnant oh fiance. All right, um, let's go. <laughs> everything. We're like, hey, we're, we're changing things up. We're, we're heading to Virginia. Never been here. Don't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. And here we are. So so can you kind of talk about um, the certifications required? Are there like state licenses that you need to train dogs or is it kind of like is it kind of like the Wild West? Like, can you kind of get whatever or do like an apprenticeship or just work somewhere for a long time? Absolutely. So... Here in the United States, there is no standard requirement to be a dog trainer. So it's really important when you're actually looking for a dog trainer to vet your dog trainer to find out what his credentials are, if he has credentials, what his background is, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, There are tons of schools across the country that offer um, basic training um, as far as pet training, how to get into it, the do's and don'ts, that kind of stuff. Um, through advanced training, through military and law enforcement training, um, Mm -hmm. all kinds of stuff. So that's one way. That's obviously going to be your most expensive way because you're paying for schooling. And it's, you know, typically kind of like a trade school. So it's condensed. It's very, very specific to the trade, um, dog training, all that kind of stuff. You're not getting like extracurricular stuff like you would if you're going to college or something like that. Um, But definitely on the higher end. So like the Tom Rose, for instance, I went through three programs, the professionals, which was 15 weeks and was right around 16 grand. Um, I went to the master's after that, <clears throat> which was an additional 10 weeks, which was right about, I want to say six or seven grand on top. Mm-hmm. And then I went to the uh, scholars program, which was 50 weeks. So basically a year. Wow. Um, and that was an additional like seven or eight grand. Wow. So definitely pricey and they're not even the priciest of them out there. And Mm -hmm. there's only a few schools that actually do like a straight through, you know, 15 weeks, 10 weeks, five weeks, whatever. A lot of schools, they're broken down in modules where you're only there for two or three weeks. And then you have to come back for more training for two or three weeks. Oh, it takes even longer. Exactly. So in this Mm -hmm. couple of schools, like Tom Rose offers onsite housing. So you can actually live nearby. He owns like 30 something houses nearby that you're actually living in a home. Um, going to school through that. There's another one um, down in North Carolina called Tar Heel. And they're a big military working dog uh, provider and law enforcement dog provider. They actually have a whole breeding program where all their dogs go to those kind of organizations. I think I've heard of that. Yep. And they do the same kind of thing. They have a housing situation where you can actually live on campus and train and learn and all that kind of stuff. So obviously that's going to be, you know, for most people, like most people that are getting out of high school or something like that, that want to follow a passion and become a dog trainer, it's probably not going to be the most easy route because mm-hmm. of the funding, unless mm-hmm. you have mom and dad that can afford it, which would be awesome. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the other options are obviously going to be like apprenticing. And apprenticing is a great way to do it, especially if you're doing something part-time. Um, if you have a great training facility nearby that they'll let you kind of follow underneath you know one of their established trainers so you learn hands-on everything now the thing with that because it's part-time 
it's more in depth. It's it, not more in depth. It's longer based. You have more time that you have to fill. Um, typically, you start off by cleaning kennels and runs and picking mm-hmm. up dog poop and bathing dogs it's before you ever get into actually, <laughs> you know, getting hands on a leash and actually working with a dog. So, so I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, that's basically um, what I was going to say. <laughs> I was going to ask you, can um, what are kind of the differences between the different types of dog training? Like, you know, you have your regular household pets and then you have military and canine dogs. Um, and then you have like support dogs or therapy dogs. Um, what, what goes into each kind? So that's also going to be very dependent upon the organization that you work for as far as their requirements. Um, so for us, everything starts off with base foundation, uh, obedience. So, you know, you can't really do anything if your dog can't sit, can't down, can't heal next to you or walk next to you. Um, solid environmental so being able to go out of town uh public access like going into stores things like that Mm -hmm. so everything for us starts there like if we can't get a dog that can be calm stable all that kind of stuff using basic obedience most of those higher level things aren't going to happen um there are organizations out there that you can reach out and they'll be like hey you know i just want a service dog and then they will uh, find or source you a dog for you train the dog give the dog to you Um, but it all comes down to that basic level of obedience. Um, Mm -hmm. once you get past that, then we start playing with the service dogs. Um, so typically for a service dog, um, you have three types of, I guess what you would call, um, access dogs or therapy dogs or service dogs, whatever you want to say. You have a service dog, which is for someone that has a diagnosed disability, um, and the dog is trained specific tasks to help mitigate that service or that disability. So if you're deaf, the dog can, you know, find out if, or if like you're have like something that's like a warning or something like a beep or something, the dog can alert you to it. Um, if you're blind, the dog can be your CNI dog. Um, if you have anxiety or PTSD, we can train a dog to alleviate your anxiety and kind of refocus you on the dog and get away from your overwhelming sense of whatever is bringing you down. Mm-hmm. Um, we can also train dogs to diagnose or not diagnose, but to alert to diabetes. So whether you have high, uh, blood or not blood, high, uh, sugar count or low sugar count, um, we can train the dog to alert you when your, uh, blood sugars are going too high or too low. So that can you know, they smell that? Oh, they can smell that. Absolutely. Oh, that's so weird. Um, big thing they've been doing the last few years is cancer dogs. Um, they bring dogs into the hospital and they will search a patient for cancer and they can actually pretty much pinpoint on that person where the cancer is. That's I heard they wild. were also doing that with COVID. They yep. had dogs testing for COVID and they were actually coming up better than the actual tests. Absolutely. So there's a few companies right now that are, I don't want to say they're doing it full time because it's such a new thing. Right. Um, but they're definitely playing around with it and they're getting great results with dogs being able to find COVID. Um, and with all the inaccuracies and all, I mean, you guys have seen the Facebook posts and the news and all right. that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. you know, 50% of the CDC test or, you know, bunk or whatever you want to call it. So they're having really good results with having dogs being able to track that stuff down. So on the other side of that, dogs with their nose, we have detection dogs, whether it be narcotics, explosives, uh, bed bugs, gas leaks. They actually have dogs that go up into uh, the pipelines up in the northern states, and they can find underground gas leaks through the pipes or oil leaks in the pipes that we would never be able to detect otherwise. Wild. Um, 
So those are just, I mean, dogs' noses are, that's what their entire world is. Like we see color and vivid and everything with our eyes. Imagine if you could see that with your nose and that would pretty much give you an idea of how accurate and how much of a uh, influencer a dog's nose is for them. That's unbelievable. I mean, you know, in some ways dogs are, are extensions of ourselves and I've always found that really cool. They're also this thing that like, we've shaped and molded into into a companion that we need. I, I, I think it's really, really interesting. Um, these people that carry on that tradition like you. Um, can you can you give us some maybe some advice for for non trainers that maybe want to do a little bit of training at home? What can they do to like just do like some basics? I, I know a lot of people make mistakes with their training. So absolutely. So biggest thing is finding out what drives your dog. So when we talk about drive, we typically have two drives. We have prey drive, which most people classify as like a toy drive. Dog, dog likes to chase a toy, grab a toy, grab a ball, go after a ball, or whatever the case may be. That's what we call prey drive. Um, in wild animals, it's the drive to go chase something, catch something, kill something, eat something. Um, the other side of it for pets would be food drive. So a dog that will do you know just about anything for food, you can throw it, they'll search for it, they'll hunt for it. Um, so big thing is finding what drives your dog and then using that to teach behaviors. Uh, so like if I have a food driven dog, the first thing everybody wants to do with their dogs is make them sit. So what you do is you take the treat, you put it above the dog's head, the dog looks up, their butt drops to the ground and we say, yes, good dog. And we reward them with the treat. Mm -hmm. So if we can find what drives the dog, we can use that to our benefit to teach the dog or shape the behaviors that we want out of the dog. And then obviously we reward the dog after that. Now, the thing that gets people caught up is how do we bridge from feeding our dog treats all the time and shoving a treat down our throat every time our dog sits to not rewarding the dog or not having to lure the dog into the position and right. still get the desired behavior. Mm -hmm. And that's where we have our different motivations. So motivation for a dog is what we use to influence the dog's decision making. So positive motivation is something physical the dog likes. So treats, love and affection, rewards, toys, things like that. Um, negative motivation is going to be some kind of corrective equipment, whether it be a leash pop, pinch collar, e-collar, something along those lines that gives the negative side or the disciplinary side to tell the dog that that's not right. Now, a lot of people get it twisted and think that a negative thing needs to be a punishment. It needs to be harsh. It needs to be painful or whatever. And that's not always the truth. A lot of times it, just, it should just be a tap on the shoulder telling the dog, hey, you're not doing what I asked you to do. Refocus and retry what I'm about to tell you to do. Mm -hmm. um, and that gives us the, 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 the boundaries of the right and wrong for a dog. Um, another big thing that helps people or doesn't help people depending on how you look at it is the dog's concept of timing. So dogs have great memories. Um, they will remember somebody they haven't seen for years. They will remember a new place or an old place that they haven't been for years. Um, especially if it has to do with something with their odor, with a dog, with the dog smelling something, a familiar odor or something like that. Um, but dog's concept of cause and effect, it's a scientific proven fact. They only have a 1.3 second window to understand cause and effect. So we have a very, very short time to tell the dog they either done something correctly and reward them or tell them they've done something incorrectly or wrong and correct them or reprimand them for it. So a lot of people don't understand that. And so good example that I have for most of my clients is you come home from work, you open your door and your dog comes running up to you and super happy to see you. 
but you look past your dog and you see like there's trash all over the floor. Your dog mm. pooped on the, you know, your kitchen floor and you get mad because, well, you know, the dog should know better, whatever. And you grab your dog and you stick your dog's nose in it. Mm-hmm. Well, you don't know when that happened. You don't know if it happened five hours ago, two hours ago, 10 minutes ago. Right. And your dog, because of his concept of cause and effect and timing, you just correct the dog for running up to you and being happy to see you. So if that uh, continues to happen a couple times, there's a really good chance that one of those times you come home, your dog won't come running up to you anymore. And they're oh. going to kind of hang back and they're going to be like, well, last time that's happened, they opened the door and they were mad at me. And they have no idea that you're mad because of the trash or the bathroom accident, the, you know, the kitchen. They're just, in their mind, none of that exists. It's you walking in the door, and because of their constant timing, you just correct them for running up to you, which you never want to do because if your dog runs away from you, if you're taking a walk or you're playing in a field and your dog's afraid to come to you, now we have a dog that's on the loose that's never going to come back. Now, I I say never kind of loosely. Obviously, dogs are intelligent. And nine out of 10 times, our dogs want to be with us regardless of what happens. And the saying is, you know, you can lock your wife in the trunk of your car for an hour and lock your dog in the trunk for an hour and see who wants to actually see you when you open the trunk. <laughs> so, you know, it's obviously going to be your dog. Your wife's probably going to be right. So. <laughs> the wife will recognize the issue there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so do you have any, you take like individual clients, right? They come in, you're not, you're not always training for organizations, right? Absolutely. So the pet or so uh, pet dogs are probably 95% of most dog trainers income. Mm. Okay. Um, if you think about, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think there was a, a, a census done and of the billion or millions of people that we have in this country, there's, I think, like two to three dogs per family. Wow. So if we look at those numbers, you're all I mean, the dog industry is huge. Um, people don't realize how much money is actually involved in the dog industry um, just within pets. Um, so like with us, so Ridgeside here in Virginia, we have like, I think, 14 trainers. And I think right now this month we're at about 100 dogs just wow. this month. Um, and we have, I want to say at least a hundred other dog training companies in the area that are a direct competition. So they have dogs that they're training. We have dogs that we're training. So there's so many dogs that are saturated in every market that if you're not doing pets, you're doing yourself a disservice. Now I love working dogs. I love doing bite work. I compete in a sport called PSA or protection sports association, which is an obedience and bite work, uh, orientated sport. Bite work. Can you explain what that is? So sending a dog after somebody. Um, okay, cool. Actually having the dog bite that person. So okay. I'm a certified decoy for the sport, PSA. So I'm the guy that runs around in a big mushroom suit or marshmallow suit and <laughs> cool. I get bit by dogs. Is that um, fun? It, it depends fun. on what your classification of fun is. So <laughs> I was in the infantry in the Marine Corps. Um, so I kicked indoors and shot things. And being a decoy is probably the closest adrenaline rush to that that you can get on the civilian side hmm. legally. Wow. Um, so it's a lot of fun. It's definitely a, 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 a bash on your body mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because you're getting hit like a freight train by 60 to 100 something pound dogs going 40 wow. miles an hour Sweet. and then they're biting you. Um, <laughs> so Sounds like my kind of time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and it's, it's not for everybody and it takes time to perfect 
the uh, the training and to learn how to do it because you can't just put somebody in a bite suit and tell your dog to go after them. Right. You see it a lot. Guys do that because they're trying to get into it and they break dogs' necks, they break teeth, um, kill a dog. There's all kinds of bad stuff to that. Wow. So that's a huge passion of mine. I love catching dogs. I love doing the bite work. Um, the other things that I like to do are like narcotic searches or odor searches and mm-hmm. tracking. I w- tracking is like my Zen moment where I, me and my dog, we're, it's just me and him walking onto a field or woods or whatever. And we follow someone's trail. It could be 300 yards. It could be two, three, five miles. And it's just me and my dog. And we're just following this trail and it's complete trust in your partner that he's going to be able to get to the end of this track. Um, and with that, like Obviously, the dog's nose is way better than ours. And if it's a double-blind track where we don't know where the person that you're trying to find is, you have to put complete trust in your dog. Otherwise, we start thinking, oh, well, I, I think the guy went this way. And we start leading our dog off the track. And then the dog's like, well, I guess dad knows where we're going. So I guess we're just going to go this way. And then now you end up like three miles away from the person you're supposed to find. <laughs> oh, wow. And yeah, it gets crazy. But that for me, that's just my zen. I just love it. So how, how can people... People at home, if they're trying to find a trainer, how can they recognize a good trainer from um, one who maybe they don't agree with their training methods or something? Absolutely. So first thing I always do for any kind of industry or anything I'm trying to look up is you got to look at reviews. Um, Now, obviously, reviews can be doctored a little bit. Some people, you know, erase bad reviews and things like that. But if you've got a guy that's got a thousand reviews and 99% of them are, you know, four or five star reviews, that's a good way to start. Um, the next thing that I would do is contact the trainer and ask them what their training methods are. Um, if they're a balanced trainer or a, uh, positive only or force free trainer. So the difference between those are a balanced trainer uses positive motivation and negative motivation. Mm-hmm. So they use positive motivation, treats, luring, things like that to teach behaviors and teach the dog what needs to do. And then they use a negative motivation, leash pops, e-collar, pinch collar, to reinforce the behaviors that we want. A positive-only trainer is someone who typically uses lots of treats. Um, They don't use any kind of negative reinforcement except for withholding the treat. And you don't really get good results because it's all one-sided. You have to have the balance of both sides. So, you know, if I had a kid and said, hey, you know, you got an F, here's five bucks. You know, it's, it's not going to, the kids going to be like, well, cool. I got five bucks. I didn't have to do anything. Um, dogs are very much the same way. So <clears throat> finding out what kind of training methods they use, what kind of equipment they use, and if they, you know, actually have some kind of background or what their background is. Is it just somebody that stood up in a uh, fly-by-night dog training school? Mm-hmm. Or did they actually get credentials? Or did they apprentice underneath a well-known trainer for X amount of years? Um, how many dogs have they trained? Um, Do they compete? That kind of stuff. Um, Do they have before and after videos? Uh, Facebook's huge. I mean, it's free marketing, free advertising or advertisement. Uh, Mm -hmm. We have a a library on our YouTube and our Facebook of probably upwards of thousands of videos of different dogs that we've trained befores, afters, durings, um, specific things, aggressive dogs, non-aggressive dogs, all kinds of stuff. and videos, I mean, you can't really lie in a video. You can speed things up so it looks cleaner, but you can tell by, you know, is that dog's tail up? Is it wagging? Is the dog happy to be with that trainer? 
mm-hmm. um, that kind of stuff. Are they having a good time? Exactly. I mean, if the dog's just like, you know, his head's hanging down, his tail's tucked between his legs. Now, don't get me wrong. You do have fearful cases that the dog could have never really cared less about the trainer and it's a completely different dog with their owner. But if that's every dog in every video or every photo, there's something going on. Right. Um, the next thing would be, you know, hey, let's let me see your dog. Do you have a demo dog? Can I see what kind of things your dog does? So I have a Belgian Malinois who's four years old. Whenever we go out to like events or fairs, my dog's with me. We're doing, you know, obedience and we're doing retrieves and all kinds of fun stuff, um, showing people that what we're capable of training. Um, now, don't get me wrong. I'm, you're not going to be able to get what my dog has done in four years in a two, three, four week boarding train. But it shows the confidence that we have in our dogs and it shows what the dog can be capable of with the right dog. Um, And it kind of sheds light on who we are. The biggest thing is asking um, if they have references of people that would be willing to talk on their behalf. Mm -hmm. Um, Because reviews are great. But again, you know, if you're not hearing it from the, uh, the actual people, (laughs) <laughs> it doesn't really mean anything. The other part of it too is, you know, do they have videos of their clients working their dogs after the training? I would expect okay. the dog to be really good with a trainer, but if that trainer can't transition the training to the owners, then it yeah. really doesn't mean anything. How much of that client training goes into like training the dog as well? So the dogs are easy most of the time. Um, once you find a dog's drive, they're pretty compliant and they're willing to work. The hardest part is getting the owners, families, multiple people in a, in a household on the same page so the dog is, has clear communication of what's expected and what they're doing. Um, so like with us, we offer lifetime support for all of our previously trained clients. So two weeks, three weeks, five years, 10 years on the road, you're having issues with your dog, you give us a call and we give you a refresher. Um, not a lot of companies do that. That's how confident we are that we, in our training and our ability to teach their owners. So. Are there any dogs that are that you would say are hopeless or can all dogs be brought to a point where they're quote unquote, you know, trained? So I would love to say that every dog has a chance. Um, the problem is that we're with an animal is we're dealing with genetics. We're dealing with another individual creature that has a mind of its own. And depending on how it was raised, the genetic makeup of that dog um, and its experiences, there are some dogs that you just can't do anything with. Um, So I've had multiple aggressive dogs that we've trained um, over the last few years that I've been doing this. And I would say probably of the several hundred, I've probably had two or three that ended up having to be put down just because that's unfortunate. It just, it, the, either the owner slipped up, wasn't maintaining the protocols that we put in place, um, or we just had to fight genetics. Um, and with dogs and genetics, you know, that's the baseline. So I don't know what color hair your hair is, but if you had black hair and I wanted it to be blue, I would have to maintain that dye for mm-hmm. so long and over time and over time and over time to maintain that blue. Once I stop maintaining that, it's eventually going to go back to your genetically based color of black. Mm-hmm. Because that's your genetic makeup. There's nothing right. I can do about that. So. Yeah, that's that's unfortunate. Um, so, how often is it the the owner versus the dog? Like, how like can an owner let it go or put bad habits into them um, instead of it just being the dog's fault? Absolutely. So, I mean, most of the time it's the owners because you don't know what you don't know, and that's where the biggest part of dog training comes in is training the owners. 
Um, a lot of times owners are positive reinforcing negative behaviors. So we see a fearful dog and the dog's freaking out and barking and growling or whatever because it's overwhelmed or it's in an environment it's not used to. And what do we do as humans when we have a baby that's overwhelmed or crying or whatever? We hug it. And we hug it. it. We try to you know soothe it. We try to calm it down. Right. Well, in a dog's mind, that's positive reinforcement. That's petting. That's love. That's positive reinforcing that dog's behavior. Mm-hmm. And us as humans, we don't think about it because we're like, oh, well, I want to soothe this animal. I want to make it happy. I want to make it calm. But in the dog's mind, they're thinking, oh, they're telling me this is what I'm supposed to be doing. So now we're encouraging the behavior that we don't want. We're teaching the dog that that's the behavior that we do want, not on purpose, but we're just, we're doing that because it's our natural, you know, thing that we do. Mm -hmm. And now we end up having a dog that's either super fearful um, or a dog that is starting to show aggression because now he's becoming more confident in that because after repetition, repetition, repetition of us rewarding the dog for that behavior, they think that that's what's supposed to do. Um, so, you know, I take it from what you've said, you know, you, you train dogs at, at, at many different stages, but do you get better results when you train it as a puppy or or when should you start training them to get the best results? I guess is, is my question. So we start at eight weeks. Um, I've trained dogs as old as I think the oldest one I've done so far is 15 years old. Um, dogs are constantly learning. Um, now you're going to have a, as a puppy, you're going to have more drive. You're going to have a dog that's more interested in doing things and learning because it's new. Everything's new to the dog. Um, but you're also going to have lack of focus. You're going to have a squirrel brain where the dog's like, Oh, what was that? Oh, what was that? Um, and older dogs, more mature dogs, you might not have as much drive because as owners, we might've not rewarded that drive. We've not may have not have encouraged the drive. So the drive goes away. And now we deal with a dog that just kind of wants to hang out and is lazy, or maybe it's overweight and it can't really do as much, but they can absolutely train and learn. Um, and then obviously with our senior dogs, you know, they're kind of in retirement and most of the time they just want someone that can just hang out with them and love on them. Mm. So we can absolutely train a dog. It doesn't matter the age or stage. Um, it's just a matter of finding, like I said before, what drives that dog. And then obviously setting the expectations with the client so that they understand where that dog can be and what's expected of that dog after the fact. I can't tell my 15-year-old client that, you know, their 15-year-old dog is going to be doing, you know, sprints and jumping over hurdles. <laughs> but I can definitely tell somebody that has a really agile, you know, happy-go-lucky dog that's like two or year and a half that has energy. Yeah, we could do agility with that dog. Absolutely. Cool. So a lot of that is just setting the expectation of what's expected of that dog and what the dog can actually do. Mm-hmm. Well, Tommy, we're uh, you know we're coming up on the end. I wanted to know if if there was anything you, that we didn't get to that you wanted to emphasize for people who might want to get into training. Biggest thing, if you're trying to get into it, just know that it's it's a lifestyle. It's a passion. It's not something that you can really hobby into. Um, I mean, I train anywhere between eight to twelve dogs a month, if not more. Um, anything from aggressive dogs to, you know, your happy-go-lucky puppies. Mm-hmm. Um, right now I have eight dogs in the kennel. I just had a newborn baby yesterday. And wow. the last three days I've been back and forth from the hospital to the kennel every day, <laughs> three, four, five times a day. So thank you. I appreciate it. Um, so it's it's definitely a lifestyle. It's a passion. Mm-hmm. Um, guys get burnt out in it very, very quickly um, just because it's, it's just nonstop. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thank My you pleasure, so much. guys. Thank you for Have having me. Have a good me. one.
Special thanks to Tommy Loveless for being today's guest. For more information about his dog training, follow him on Instagram at dogtrainertommy. You can keep up to date with our latest episodes by following us on Instagram at whatdoyoudo underscore podcast. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you like the show.